Welcome to Small Town Tales, a podcast where we hear stories of the paranormal, haunting legends, and all things spirit. Join us as we explore the unknown. Now, here's your host, C.L. Thomas. Welcome to this edition of Small Town Tales podcast. Today's guest is Michelle Ballinger. She is most widely recognized for her work on television's Paranormal State exploring abandoned prisons and haunted houses while blindfolded and in high heels. A leading authority on psychic and supernatural topics, Michelle's nonfiction research in books like The Dictionary of Demons and the Psychic Vampire Codex has been sourced in television shows, university courses, and numerous publications around the world. Michelle, I'm honored to have you on the show. You have such an amazing career as an author, medium, and even as a musician. All your works are inspired by the paranormal. Can we start by you telling us what led you down the paranormal path? Well, I was raised in a family where psychic abilities were pretty normal. Uh, So my grandmother and her siblings, uh, both of whom were a couple generations away from Irish immigrants, and although they were Irish Catholic, like you can't take the mysticism out of that. There was a lot of story about second sight and ghosts and family banshees. So from from very early on, there was uh, a lot of mysticism and magic and uh, interesting experiences and, and family accounts of ghost experiences from, from you know childhood up. So you purchased a house that you call the Inspiration House. Yeah. Uh, so that was 2018. I'd, I'd been looking for years for a good place to be a kind of paranormal retreat house, a place that I could... Uh, do weekend retreats and teach folks uh, how to develop their psychic abilities, uh, mediumship, things like that. And I, I wanted an older building, and I was hoping it would be haunted. And we, we kept looking at a couple of different properties here and there, and nothing quite hit in like the the financial, like feasible range, but also like the space that we needed and the right feel for the place. Uh, and this this old brick house in Oberlin came on the market. And when we first went to look at it, it was it was out of our price range, but it had the feel. And I was like, I think this place is haunted, like actually like in a cool way. And very validating was uh, it was a mother daughter team for the realtors. And you know, as we're looking around, they're they're like, so there's some things about the house, and maybe there's some energy here that not everybody's going to be okay with. You seem like you might be able to handle it. And like, you know, one of those words like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, there's some stuff going on here. And that's why it's been on the market as long as it has. Uh, And, you know, as, as things came together, it went, we didn't buy like right then. And it went back up on the market and it went down. And finally it dropped to a point where we were like, okay, we really just need to just take the plunge. And the place is one of the most physical uh, hauntings in manifestations that is not negative. Like usually you go to places and it's like something terrible has happened. You know, a whole family's been killed and that's why things are knocking around and like the doors open and close and music boxes play. But this, as, as far as I can tell from my psychic abilities and from all the research, there are people who have died in the house, but in almost all cases of old age, like they just, they lived in the house, they loved the house and they've never moved out. And they're very 
present. Like they, they interact with folks and it makes, it also has a history that is easy to research. So there's good verification for folks who get impressions. Like I can then point to, here's a picture of that person. Like, you know, sketch down like what you're seeing. Here's what they look like. Let's, let's compare those. Uh, so that, that instant val- val- uh, verification and validation is really good for folks for the classes. That's really interesting. What kind of people actually lived in this house and when was it built? Uh, it was started in 1869 and they finished building it in 1870. It was a father and son. They were carriage makers in the town and they were making it for the son and his new wife and their new family. And so the house was built with, you know, kind of like the, the whole starting the family uh, in mind. There's like a little extra room that is my display room, sort of like my personal paranormal museum that was, it looks like an addition to the house, but it was built with everything else intended to be like the office that the, that the son would work through. Uh, details are a little hazy, but for a house that was built for this family to pretty much like start their legacy in, they didn't live in it for very long. And although I cannot find the wife's death records, given that he moves to Chicago not too long after that, there's every indication that she died in the house. Um, her specific details, I'm still trying to track down. We know that she had a child in the house, but it was you know three, four years after the completion that she they're, they're gone. They're, they've moved out of it and the house goes through a couple of other families. Uh, there is another family related to the Worcesters who are a, a local like long clan. Like they're, they're so well established to have their own website that is like their family genealogy back to the 1700s, which oh, made wow. my job of researching them so easy. <laughs> I love and, that. Yeah, no, it was great. Like, <laughs> what, one of the things that I love about ghost hunting is it's also, you know, history detective mm-hmm. work. Like you're, you're sleuthing out the stories of these places and, and that family kept passing the house down among uh, the female relatives, whether you know whether they were widows, whether they were like unmarried spinsters, and it just kind of passed a- along, usually with the proviso that like the new person who has inherited it is agreeing to get this house for their family because they're also taking care of like their elderly auntie who can't live on her own. And so like the house comes with uh, the, the elderly person who lived most of their lives in there and you know that they're going to pass on in the house. And in the, uh, let's see, 60s and 70s, there was this awesome artist dude who lived there and there's synchronicity around us buying this house. This is my favorite story. You know, so, so we've taken the plunge, we've bought the house, we get the keys, we drive into Oberlin and as we're driving in, um, the, the family that had been there before had agreed to just leave a bunch of the stuff behind, but we still needed some furniture. I really wanted some antique stuff that was timely for it. We pass an antique store uh, in the town that is going out of business like that day. So like they're like, everything must go. So we go in and we buy a bunch of stuff for wonderful prices. And the fellow who owns it, Alan Campbell, uh, agrees, because we can't fit all of it in our car, that he's got a truck and he'll drive it over to the house. So we go to the house, we wait for him. He shows up. And he's like, I know this house. And he had been, he started his work as a handyman in the 70s as, as like an 18, 19 year old. He worked for that dude in that house. Like he oh, did wow. a bunch of years. Uh, so I got to hear all the stories to confirm a lot of my impressions of that guy. 
uh, which is really, really cool. So, and, and Alan is just like this, this wonderful, like super talented. He's, he's done a lot of like uh, work on the house to, to repair it because a 150 plus year old house is a daunting yes. piece of property. Uh, like it had had a new roof. It had a new furnace. Like there's a lot of updates to it. And also it's a brick house and there's a lot going on. <laughs> what are some of the things that happened in that house to you? There's an old Fisher Price toy that was left by the previous residents. Um, and if you're around my age, you grew up with this. It looks like a little TV. It plays row, row, row your boat and uh, London Bridge is falling down. It's got like a little thing that scrolls across. So it looks like a TV playing a thing. And we think that the previous owners got it at a garage sale. It still had its sticker on it when it was among the things that were left behind. And we were sorting through stuff to figure out like what stayed, what went, what got donated, et cetera. And this was on our pile of this is junk to us. And as we were debating throwing it out, it started to play. Wow. <laughs> and maybe we just jiggled the floors and we, we played around with it, but it started to really seem like it was responding in an intelligent way. And of course, like at that point, like I've got my phone out and I'm like, Facebook, check this out. <laughs> this is wild. Something in the house of uh, likes to play music boxes. That's definitely a thing. Uh, we've had, we definitely heard footsteps, heavy, like, like male booted feet. Uh, and we're not the only ones. There was a team that came in with like a little detector that they set on the floor to detect vibrations and they had someone in the basement alone, so the whole house is empty. And above him, because he kept hearing the footsteps up there, uh, they just placed this and put cameras so you could see in real time him in the basement saying, I hear footsteps, and then the vibration thing going off, picking up that the floor is moving like somebody's walking across the floor. Would you say that these are these spirits in your home, are they conscious that you're there? Do they interact with you Well. Obviously, yeah, they interact with you, but is it just a residual energy or is this an active, do, are they conscious spiritually? That was one of the first questions that I felt it was important to answer. There's definitely residual energy in the house, although most of that is from the previous owners. They, as far as we can tell, had probably the worst two years of their lives and their marriage fell apart, and there was a lot of that left over. So there's definitely some some residual, especially in a couple of rooms where just like they sat and sort of stewed. And the spirits, there's there's a, there's a good handful of them, several unique individual personalities. And the way that I measure is the spirit a residual haunting, or is this an intelligent spirit? Is, does it respond to me? Like how do we interact? Do they seem to be aware of me if I'm aware of them? And yeah, there's there's been interaction and conversation and engagement. Uh, and there's a lot of personality that comes out in each of them. Some are a little bit more inclined to be friendly with people. And not that they're not friendly, but like actually come out and interact with folks. And a few of them are just sort of like that, that elderly person in the house who's just like, oh, who's here now? <laughs> <laughs> Get out of my house. What are some of the misconceptions of spirit hauntings in the paranormal field in relation to conscious hauntings? I think the first one is that if there's a human spirit, that they're somehow stuck or bound. And while in cases of traumatic events where something really terrible has happened to someone, they can get wound up in that. 
And until they resolve their trauma and their emotional entanglement, they may not be able to move past certain ruts and certain repetitive events. Spirits, human spirits can choose to hang around. Like they are not necessarily haunting simply because they are earthbound. Uh, they, they may stay by choice because there's something that interests them. There's something that they want to look after. There's a person they want to see grow up. And you know, in several cases, they'll hang around just to wait to help to sort of like be the guide on the other side for a family member. Or in the case of a lot of the ones at Inspiration House, they're there because they love the space. Uh, they've got you know all the time in the world and they're not ready to move past it yet. Not, not in a bad way, just they, they like it. It's really interesting too. So there's one of the EVPs that everybody catches seems to be help me and some negative energy. What is your theory on that? A lot of, especially the human spirits that are most likely to reach out repeatedly are the ones that are in distress. They, they're looking for a lifeline. Uh, and when there's a lot of strong emotion that gives them a lot of energy, a lot of power to manifest, uh, think of it like when someone's drowning, there's, there's a point where it's very dangerous to try to grab them because in, in, there, there's this burst of, of strength and, and panic. So the stronger your emotions, the more likely you are to just, you know, every, all, all, the, all the stops come out. And I'd say that that is the case with human spirits that are in distress. They are the ones that, you know, might actually even like, you know, reach out and grab or even scratch you because they're so desperate to connect. Uh, and, and they're so like overwrought by the fact, like here's someone that maybe they can, they can tell their story to. Here's maybe someone that they can connect with. Conversely, if everything is, you know, sunshine and roses, you're only going to engage if you really want to, if you feel like this is somebody that you want to connect with. Otherwise, you're just off doing your thing. That's interesting, too. Um, in the documentary Demon House, Zach demos the house to the ground as a way to put an end to the energy that was happening in the house. I'm not going to say it's demonic or not. It could be either mm -hmm. or. Do you think that just getting rid of a house is an effective way to clean a property that's been infested with spirits and things like that? Do you think that they could actually travel to different properties? I don't think leveling the physical object, destroying the physical object, d destroys the spirit. Um, and an Inspiration House is a pretty good indication of that because prior to our house that was built in 1869 uh, and 70, there was another property, there was another home, and there are several uh, interactions people have had with spirits that seem that they could only tie to that house because that house had ties to the Underground Railroad and events that led up to and played out through the American Civil War. Uh, we know that the house that occupied that place before Inspiration House was one of uh, maybe two in all of the city of Oberlin that they know for a fact had hidden uh, tunnels and you know hidden rooms and booby traps because the husband and wife were conductors on the Underground Railroad. Uh, their house was knocked down, um, the property was cleared, and it was parceled out to multiple different buildings, but the things tied to that house remain. So removing the house doesn't necessarily remove the energy. That Just to point that it's a 
um, the Underground Railroad. That is so interesting. And I lived in the South for 15, 16 years, and it seemed like anything surrounding slavery and the history of slavery, particularly the plantations and um, some of the old houses, large houses where they would have had carriage houses and where the help would stay, Mm -hmm. always seemed to be the most haunted places. Strong emotions, traumatic emotions really build up the intensity of a haunting. And when you have an intelligent spirit that is wound up with that, that, that trauma really increases almost the desperation with which they will manifest. Uh, it, it's, I was skeptical about a couple of things that some teams had gotten at our property because, you know, Oberlin was known for the Underground Railroad. And they were like, oh, we're getting all of this stuff about the Underground Railroad. And here I've got these EVPs of screams. And I'm like, but this house was built after the after all of that. Like, like that doesn't make a lot of sense. And it took a lot of digging to go, oh, but the property actually played a pivotal role. And so some of the things that these people had picked up on EVPs and a couple of the other psychic folks, they tuned into this other aspect that is tied to the land, is tied to what's sort of like left behind. One thing that we're trying to, I'm not sure if we'll ever be able to prove it or disprove it, is whether or not the the stones of the basement in Inspiration House uh, if they were repurposed from the previous house, there's not a whole lot of like time from one to the other, and it always seemed a little weird to me that like they tore this whole house down and just you know deconstructed the whole thing. Uh, and there are a couple of architectural elements that were left in the garden that seem like they might be from a previous property, and and I wonder how much that energy lingers just to the the things. Can you tell me your experience and theories on spirits' attachment to humans? Oh, complicated. So <laughs> it's kind of like a complicated relationship, right? It, it is. <laughs> it can be positive and it can be negative. I mean, one thing that I know is spirits need energy to maintain themselves, to manifest, for, for the sort of strength to, to do the things. And people are the easiest source of that energy. Uh, so in a lot of negative hauntings, people will feel that they're being preyed on, that they're being fed on, that like there's this sort of like exhausting energy drain, that they're slowly being worn away over time. And it's my belief that the, the spirits that are manifesting around them are if, in, in effect feeding off their energy in order to in, enrich themselves, in order to fuel their manifestations. But it's not only negative spirits like that. And so there are several world traditions where ancestor worship is, is a part of the worldview. And you make offerings to the ancestor spirits who it's sort of a symbiotic relationship. You willingly give them things to support them. And then they work as your guides, as your guardians, as people who look after you and your family. Uh, so it can be a, a positive relationship, but mostly there's, there's an interconnectedness there. What's interesting too with that is it seems like to be remembered is a big part of that. Like when you look at the Catholics, they have the prayers for the dead. That's a way of remembering them. Uh, Day of the Dead is a huge one with the in the Mexican community, and then of course you got Voodoo, and that's all ancestral remembrance. Yeah. In modern paganism, they say you know that which is remembered lives. 
I remember reading, and this is a paraphrase of uh, an ancient Egyptian idea, but uh, someone is immortal as long as their name is remembered. And that ends up being expressed in an ancient Egyptian tradition of if somebody was just considered a vile person, you would strike their name out of the record. Like every place where it appeared, it would just be chucked out, erased, defaced as a way of sort of erasing their memory and starving their spirit. To the spiritual or spirit attachments to humans, what are the emotional impacts of of these attachments? When it's a malevolent, negative, or traumatized force, because sometimes things can do great harm without meaning to, those emotions can pass to the person that they are connected to. Uh, if they've made like these little filament connections, if they're kind of hovering around them, if they're getting entangled with the human, what they feel starts to be picked up consciously or unconsciously. It's, it's transmitted uh, psychically to the person. If the person is empathic, they may respond uh, very strongly to this. If they don't think of themselves, if the regular person doesn't think of themselves as psychic at all, it doesn't mean that they're not affected by it. It just means they don't really recognize where this influence is coming from. Uh, so a, a classic example of that is you know, a, a really negative haunting where uh, a mass murder happened. And whatever was sort of like revolving around that, what maybe triggered that is still there. And we think of the scariest thing uh, a, a spirit could do would be to scratch us or grab us or, or physically har- harm us. And it's been my experience that the more damaging thing is to just slowly infuse a space with anger and rage such that the people there simply start feeling that and acting on it so that there's this slow, crawling, subtle psychic influence that changes how you feel about people around you and things around you. Uh, That's reported on and noticed mostly when it's negative, but it can it can be a positive thing as well. It's just it's a little bit like the internet. Like people, if they have a complaint, are gonna are gonna say it, but you don't really say it when everything's fine. Like because it's fine. Why 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 shout? On the flip side of that, do you think that that could lead to people physically harming other people or themselves, or do you think they can get physically ill from yes. spirit attachments? Oh. It can wear you down mentally, emotionally, physically. Uh, I've seen people report first like autoimmune disorders where like just the the, the slow grind starts to just wear out your immune system, Uh, stomach problems, headaches, and often escalating to like you're you're now you're short-tempered, now you're having like anger outbursts. And some people are a little bit more susceptible to that than others. I remember uh, I, I used to, I worked with Lorraine Warren way, way, way back. Um, and while we don't see eye to eye on everything and kind of enjoyed some, some banter back and forth about that, uh, she did a presentation on what she believed was, was a full-on possession. And how that had started was this sort of invisible influence of this person's emotional state. And, you know, he was already somewhat explosive, but it just, it pushed him over an edge until, you know, a bad day where he might snap at someone verbally turned into a bad day where he shot someone. 
So do you think that some entities play on people's vices, such as depression, anger, different mental disabilities? Um, some of the truly malevolent ones, absolutely. And, you know, that too, it's not always intentional, right? No, it's not always intentional. We did, uh, we did an investigation with Paranormal State and... I think it would have been easy to say, oh, this is a demon, but, but research and interacting with it, this was like a great grandfather who had been like a hard drinking man and a kind of abusive person in his life. And he'd sort of stayed that way in death. Like he really hadn't gotten over it. And if anything, he'd gotten meaner because he could get away with these things without any kind of repercussions. And he was really just stuck in the same rut of lashing out at specific people in the house and in the family that he would have lashed out in at in, in physical life. Uh, so, you know, was he trying to be, uh, you know, a, a malevolent force consuming the family there? Not necessarily. He was stuck in a rut of behavior that he'd never sorted out in life, and there wasn't much opportunity for him to sort it out in death. Uh, I also investigated, God, this is probably 25 years ago now, a case where um, there was a house in, I think, Bedford, Ohio, that afterwards, there, they, bones were discovered on the property after this investigation. Um, a, a young girl had been walled up. Uh, and, yeah, and like, so, so there, obviously there, there was a murder and, and things that had happened there and, and bad stuff had happened to the girl. And weirdly, in the investigation, the, the person who so the full story is uh, a young man and his friend were homeless for a time and they went and squatted on this property that was in between uh, being resold. And the young man was sensitive uh, and, you know, not really trained with it or anything and had a bad feeling about the space. But like, you know, when you're homeless, you break into a place and sleep if you want to be warm. Uh, and so he had, he felt like this whole thing like kind of came over him and he felt he, he what he reported to me was feeling like he experienced the perspective of the murderer and the murdered all wound up in the same thing over time it really seemed like it was the girl that had kind of attached herself to him but was playing this event out over and over and over again in such a desperate attempt to communicate what had happened to her but the way that she would transmit it was to just throw the experience at him, like all of the emotions, all of the feelings, everything. Uh, and and it, was, it was like an attack. Uh, and it was very destructive to this young man uh, to the point where, you know, a friend of a friend recommended him to me. Uh, and and we, we spent some time like trying to help, trying to figure out like how to untangle it, how to prove even what was going on. Uh, so she didn't mean any harm, but she was in such a crisis that she absolutely caused harm. And she was one of the few cases, like, I don't really believe in, you know, just opening up a portal and being like, go into the light. Uh, Cause I, I don't feel that it is my place to determine when it's someone's time to move on. But I do believe in applying like psychological therapeutic techniques and trying to talk them through where they're at so that they can have better tools to get there. So you know, give them a chance of like, okay, so do you know you're dead? Okay, are you like, like, how do you, like, like, how do you feel about that? 
Uh, what are you wrestling with? Okay, can you fix that? Is that something like, like, what do we need to do to like get you in a better place? Uh, do you realize you're hurting people? Are you okay with that? Maybe you should like try a different way of communicating if you don't <laughs> want to be hurting people. Recently, a friend of mine said he was watching a group. He, he knows this group really well, and he's got a deep connection with them. And they were out investigating, and they were doing a live feed with him. And on the spirit box that they were using, the entity called his name. Mm-hmm. Do you believe that a spirit can have that kind of consciousness where they're aware of you, even though you're not on a haunted location? Yes, um, because so I believe that's you know we think of ourselves maybe as psychic to to some degree. Um, maybe not everybody thinks of themselves as psychic, but all of us have some level of perception of energy and the feel of a space. Uh, we may respond to it only unconsciously. Spirits don't have like this physical body to get in their way to like make them overthink things and doubt things. And, and the way that they communicate and interact is purely on that level of, of energy and what we think of as psychicism. Uh, and so when somebody communicates with them, it's not so much that they hear your word coming out of your mouth. It's that they pick up on the intent. Uh, you and I speaking the words out loud helps us to solidify that intent. Like it gives a sense of we are communicating something, but thoughts and emotions are also picked up. So if his friends were thinking about him, it's especially surface thoughts. If he had a strong connection to those people, that spirit, and, and honestly, a psychic, a good energy worker would be able to uh, connect to those people and perceive him at a distance. That's why Reiki practitioners and folks are able to do energy work at a distance. Uh, so yeah, I, I absolutely believe that spirits are able to transcend you know, geography and distance in ways that seem extraordinary to us. But if you stop and kind of think about the way in which they interface with the world, it's not that weird. Right. Um, Michelle, we got to take a quick break, but when we come back, we will continue our discussion on consciousness of spirits and spirit attachments. You're listening to Small Town Tales with stories of the paranormal, haunting legends, and all things spirit with your host, C.L. Thomas. Come join C.L. Thomas at the Las Vegas Para-Unity Convention this December at the MGM Grand Conference Center, showcasing the biggest names in the supernatural and cryptid aspects of the paranormal field, along with the horror as well as the comic book field. Go to VegasParaUnity.com. That's VegasParaUnity.com. And we're back with special guest, Michelle Belanger. I always misspell your name. I'm sorry. That's okay. If it makes you feel any better, half <laughs> my family pronounces it Belanger. Belanger. And most people are like, is that Belanger? Like, what is that? It, it really depends on like where you're from. It, if Also, if it helps, it's originally French. It's Acadian French. Uh, and it means beautiful angel. And I just love that, by the way. Beautiful angel. So a couple years ago, um, I did a walkthrough as a medium and I'm not a medium. I do have some gifts, but I don't profess myself as a medium or anything like that. But there is a Nashville ghost hunting group that I did some work for. And they asked me to go into the house before they started their investigation. And I did the walkthrough and it was a musician's house um, that was built in the Victorian age. 
And the things I picked up on were just, I saw different spirits, but they were all in different time periods in the same house. So there was, there was a woman who was from the 1920s. She looked very 1920s. And then there was a man who was from the Victorian age, but in the house looked different from both from the different time periods and they didn't interact with each other. So after I left the house, I did the, kind of the walkthrough um, with the camera guy and then I left. I didn't know anything else about the case. And it turned out that the house had burned down and was rebuilt and this and that. What are your thoughts on when a house like such as the one that you have, um, the inspirational house, it's built in different time periods. So what accounts for the spirit still interacting in those time periods? And I know some of the answer to this, but how come they're not aware of each other? They're aware of me, but why aren't they aware of each other? Or are they? Sometimes they are. And sometimes they're so like linked into the layer of the house that they consider their home, that they're not willing or able to see another part of it. Uh, especially, I, I find this especially true when the building itself has changed significantly. So the one version of the house that the man was really tied to, it doesn't technically physically exist anymore, but there's there's an energetic echo of it and that's more of what he's attached to. That's more where he lives. And it would take a lot of self-awareness, like a certain development on his part to kind of move out of his of what he's stuck in, of, of what he is focused on, to go, oh, the world is not only this part of my world. Like there's time has moved on. Time has gone past me. Uh, so you've got like these like ants in amber, like these layers of time, especially older spaces are like this. Human ghosts, the thing about them is, I don't want to say that they're like, you know, stuck so much, but they get, they get in ruts and they focus on what's familiar to them. A ghost is a memory in a lot of ways. And especially a ghost is what they themselves remember and what they find important. And they can get tunnel vision and only fixate on that. Uh, it's why sometimes it's really hard to tell the difference between uh, and, and a residue or a residual haunting, especially if it has like a pattern that you can perceive, and an intelligent haunting, if that intelligent haunting is so focused on basically doing the same rut, like, like the girl from, from the Bedford house, uh, where until she broke out of her, her sort of trauma loop, her cycling with it, it was hard to tell. Like, is this residual? Is there an intelligent spirit behind here? How, how do we know? Like, she's just doing the same thing over and over again. So a lot of communication, at least for me, with intelligent ghosts is to get them to snap out enough to like recognize what's around them and the fact that things have changed around them, at, that, at which point they are a little bit more inclined to interact. With Inspiration House, I've noticed that some of them recognize one another and are from very different time periods. There's, there, there's a man and there's a woman who stand in the living room parlor and, honest to goodness, will argue about the drapes and about the decor. And, and they're from you know very different time periods, uh, but they almost sound like an old married couple. And, and the hilarious, <laughs> I can hear them as a psychic and people have picked them up on their EVPs. And I'm like, I know exactly who these people are. <laughs> they did not live together. They've just like 
they're buddies on the other side, like for whatever reason. <laughs> but for those two, there's like, you know, three or four more who do not really seem to intersect at all. And I think some of that may also be a matter of choice. I have cats. I've had cats since I was, you know, for, for years and years. And some cats bond and are like <laughs> cool buddies. And some cats will just pick their part of the house and their part of the house. And they just really try to avoid one mm. another. I mean, imagine being in the same space and like this space is really important to you. Like you are so, you love it so much, or you are so invested with it that you are not moving past it. And now there's somebody else here. And it's also like really important to them, but you don't know those people. And do you really want to know those people? <laughs> Another popular phenomenon that people talk about who are investigators, they talk about, they have dreams of a specific spirit even before they it's happened to me before even before they even get to a haunted location they're having dreams of a spirit have you heard of this no and and yes i have definitely heard of it it has happened to me before uh interestingly it is really common for it to happen if katrina weidman is on a case we notice this in paranormal state uh and i still I still can't say exactly like why Katrina, why not? Because I, I work with Elfie, like we definitely like mm-hmm. have done magic together. Like I've got a a, a relationship and a, a resonance with you know various members of the cast, but something about Katrina, uh, I would key into things with her, and it's continued with my work on both Paranormal Lockdown and Portals to Hell. So, by my beliefs and based on you know experiences and, and training that I've had. Dreams are one of the primary and easiest places that spirits can communicate with us. Even those of us who don't think of ourselves as psychic, the part of our brain that opens up, the part of our brain that we inhabit when we're dreaming is soft enough around the edges to allow that communication. And and this is not a new idea. Actually, in, in the ancient world, dream incubation, like the active pursuit of dreams for communicating with spirits was a significant part of of multiple mystical traditions and magical traditions in the ancient world. Uh, It's where our word dormitories comes from, as as weird as that is. like We think of dormitories with colleges, but originally Greek dormitories were places where you would incubate your dreams. You would lay down on a sacred sheepskin and you would think about the person like there were different rituals and things would try to open this and like invite the communication a little bit more. But the whole point was that the dream space was a space of liminality, of communication, uh, a place where, you know, yeah, sometimes you were just having a dream and sometimes you were having much more than a dream. So it's not surprising at all to me how many people will dream of a location beforehand, will will like have, like you're thinking about it and on some level you may be already connecting to it. And in connecting to it, now there's a pathway between you and the energy there. And if there's something intelligent, they can reach back and be like, you're knocking on my door. Who are you? What's going on? So if human spirits can do that, do you believe that demonic entities can do that? Uh, I, I believe that spirits of all stripes can do it. Uh, and it varies, like, the degree to which something may, like, kind of cross those gulfs. I also believe that most of us have a lot more protection than we give ourselves credit for, especially on the unconscious level. Uh, like, if if 
we just went to sleep and dreamed and there were no boundaries at all. Like, like how horrifying would that be? Like there, there's so many things out there in the same way that when we sleep and dream and it opens up this level, this ability to reach out beyond our own boundaries. I think it also taps into that deeper part of ourselves that is very aware of how to hold those boundaries outside of really extreme situations, things are not going to come in that you don't want, that you won't allow. Uh, I also believe, I guess everybody else is going to call it spirit guides, but I, I think many of us have sort of a team on the other side, like family members, spirits that like have just decided to hang out with us because they like us, whatever. Like, But there are beings that help hold space for us when we're vulnerable. We may not even be conscious of them, but there's a relationship and kind of a contract there. So we're not as vulnerable as we think we are, which is probably a good thing because there's a lot of stuff out there. So you wrote a book called Dictionary of Demons, and I think I see it behind you. Is that the book behind you? Yep, yep. Hang it out. <laughs> um, you say in that book that saying a demon's name is is powerful and that that's the way you can invoke them. Can you kind of elaborate on this a little bit? So in the ancient world, um, where, where Western world sort of says this is the cradle of civilization between the Tigris and the Euphrates, Mesopotamia, so Sumeria, Babylon, um, even you know predating Ju- Judaism, this is where many of our concepts of demons, possession, and exorcism come from, uh, techniques that we would recognize even now. And a key belief back then that has been passed down along the ages is that names have power. Uh, And what we sort of popularly remember with that is that the name summons something. And while that's partly true, the name gives you the power to call it, to banish it, to bind it, to drive it out. Knowing the name of an evil spirit, a demon, an unclean spirit was a fundamental part of driving it out. So the rituals of exorcism that were developed back then revolve around the name. Um, and the names of, of gods and goddesses and powers that also have power over that to protect people and to help drive them out. So, so names as magic, as talismanic, uh, is, is a huge thing. And the influence uh, all the way down to uh, biblical times, we can see in the story of Jesus and the Gerasene demoniac. Like Everybody knows the story without necessarily knowing like that it comes from like Mark and, and Luke because we've all heard, I am legion. And this, this is the story where I Am Legion comes from. Jesus encounters this guy. He's known to be possessed. <clears throat> There's a whole bunch of different demons and things inside of him. Jesus demands the name of the unclean spirits that are afflicting this man. And the answer is, my name is Legion from We Are Many. And the end result is Jesus gets that and drives all of the spirits out into a whole herd of swine. The swine go mad and go over a cliff. And in dying, also the demons die. The thing about that is anybody witnessing that in biblical times would recognize point for point an exorcism that was at that point several thousand years old, where you demanded the name you drove the spirit from the human into a proxy, a goat or a pig or another other sort of animal, and that proxy was sacrificed to then dispel the spirit. 
you didn't want to kill the person to kill the demon. Like that sort of defeats the whole purpose, but by moving it to something else. And the name was the key to it. So does that say that that the demon has to occupy a physical body in order to exist? No, but for... So I should say that putting it into a proxy, um, like an animal or something, and then sacrificing the animal was only one way. Uh, You could put it into a a waxen figure. You could put it into... Demon jars were really popular. Uh, So you could put it into a vessel. It was giving physical humans a physical object that they could then interact with more reliably than they necessarily can with if a human is wrestling with just a spirit. Uh, it's, it's very challenging, even if you are a powerful energy worker. Uh, you know, we're, we're in these bodies and it can be difficult to like focus and to like really believe that you are overcoming something if you haven't this sort of like physical touch tone of, and now you're, you know, now you're ash, now you're pot shards, now you're, uh, the sacrificial goat. There's a popular belief about um, you have to physically invite a demon in in order to be possessed. You hear that over and over again, too. What's your theory on that? It depends on the type of spirits that we're dealing with. Um, The invitation idea is very alluring. Um, I will say that in the ancient world, it was less about like directly saying, hey, Hey, demon guy, I want you to like, like, it wasn't about that. The, the invitation, um, or the, the infestation was more usually about breaking a taboo, uh, doing something that was considered unclean, doing something that was, uh, considered, you know, against the rules of, of the society at the time. Uh, if you pissed off a certain god or goddess, you might have something like that happen. Uh, but in the ancient world, also, demons were, they were agents of disaster and disease, beings of chaos, and they were, in a lot of ways, the culture's way to try to explain why bad things happened in the world. Why did people get sick uh, at a time where you don't understand contagion, where you don't understand what a, what a brain tumor is? How do you explain what's happening to this person? Uh, so I think it's important to understand, especially in the ancient world, where a lot of our ideas come from a demon and a disease and exorcism and medicine were kind of the same thing. Like there wasn't much of a difference, which then means that ideas of how you get this, how do you open yourself up to that kind of fall into, I don't want to say the realm of superstition, but certainly aspects that can be touched by superstition. The idea that just saying a name means that now this terrible thing's going to happen to you. What I can say from my practical experience is it's not as simple or as easy as just opening yourself up once. It's not, you know, you played with a Ouija board and now this terrible thing is going to happen. It's a long process of something knocking on a door and pushing and pushing again. And there are multiple times where you can push back and be like, that doesn't seem right. Go away. And there is a sort of event horizon where a person is like, nah, this is fine. Whether that's because you know, they're more vulnerable because they've been depressed for a while, more vulnerable because they are battling an addiction, more vulnerable because they are just a horrible person. Um, 
but it's it's not as simple and it is not a one-time event. Like it is a long process for something like that to happen. So when you get the calls, I'm sure you get calls for investigation of people who believe that they have spirit attachments. What is your method of determining whether it's demonic or human? First, I assess the person. I, I've, I've, I should also say, full disclosure, I've got a degree in comparative religious studies with a concentration in psychology of religion. So psychology also plays a role in a lot of what I assessed. Um, not to say that people's experiences are all in their head as in they're crazy, uh, but that oftentimes there are underlying factors of you know abuse and trauma and whatnot that you have to take into consideration in, in different levels of, of mental illness that somebody can definitely be suffering from mental illness and also have something going on spiritually but you need to figure out like which came first because if you've got a like a, a malevolent entity that has been preying on you that's going to cause a lot of trauma and a lot of issues that you should also go to a therapist to, to work out while we're also dealing with this and if you've got a lot of this other stuff that you're dealing with and a lot of emotional scars that may have made you vulnerable. So you, you can't really address one without the other. So oftentimes the first thing is, is getting to know the person, getting to know the family, understanding their situation, kind of making an assessment of like, like where are they at emotionally and mentally and physically? And then what does the space feel like? What does this spirit, if there is one, feel like? Because I mean, I've investigated things where it's like, this is definitely, this is just a human spirit, but they are just horrible. Right. And I could see why it's indistinguishable from what we think of as dem demonic, because it's really hard for us to wrap our head around the evil that just a person can do. So figuring out like, okay, is this, is this, you know, great grandfather and he's just a dick <laughs> or <laughs> non-human? My yardstick for non-human is also based on like, how does that spirit act and interact? Like, what is their psychology like? Human spirits are a little easier to understand because they, they act like a person. Like we expect a human to act, even, you know, horrible, nasty people. Uh, but things that are non-human, like leaning into that, like, you know, non-human entity, demonic, whatever you want to th think of it, they have very different feels, they have very different motivations, the way that they will act and interact has an alien quality to it. And so starting to measure that is, is the other thing. I have a personal checklist because I, I use the word demon incredibly sparingly because I think it does get overused. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of things that aren't technically demonic, but are still malevolent that we definitely encounter. For me, to use the word demon for a spirit that I'm working with, uh, it has to definitely be non-human. It doesn't seem like it has ever been human. It is intelligent, not just like human level intelligent, but probably like super villain level intelligent. It is demonstrably malevolent. Like it's not trying so hard to communicate that it's accidentally hurting people. It's not just too much. It's not so wound up with negative emotions that that's all you're feeling. There is an intentional harm being done, and it is its choice to do that. And as kind of an addendum for that, there is a fixation on living people, on humans, that this being wants to, 
attach itself to them, influence them, harm them, usually with the goal of wearing them down to the point that it can wear their skin, um, influence them, become embodied in some way or another, which I think personally goes back to the fact that they've never been human, that they can't incarnate. They want to interact with this world and they need us to do it, but there's a lot that they need to do in order to wear someone down. So what do you suggest for someone um, who is does have an attachment to be able to clean themselves and heal mentally and spiritually from an entity attachment? Well, the first couple of steps where a spirit makes an attachment, by my perception as an energy worker and a psychic, is the spirit's like over here and there's these tiny little filaments of energy where it's trying to connect to you. Uh, I perceive it, and this might be just my interpretation, as usually along the back, like the back of the, like kind of the base of the neck or the middle of the back, like this is like where these little lines are, but they, they may be in multiple places. And the first step is to just go, okay, I think there's, there's something here. Uh, I, I think that it's made a connection to, a, to me or this person. Clear that off. Uh, if you don't feel comfortable, like just doing an energy cleansing yourself, uh, if there's an energy worker or uh, another like spiritually trained person who you trust, have them clear you or cleanse you some way. And there, there's multiple ways to do it. You you can use energy work or Reiki. Uh, you can use you know just just a blessing or a cleansing, uh, smoke cleansing, holy water. All of these things are different approaches to clear a person off. Uh, I recommend grounding, centering, and shielding after that, where grounding is like you consciously take everything that feels off and unwanted and you just let it flow out of you. Uh, a lot of people will think of it as literally grounding. So like you let it go all the way down to your feet and then down into the earth and you just sort of like let the earth take care of it. Uh, I personally will also um, use water. So if I'm really having a hard time focusing with it, I run my hands under a cold tap water and use that sensation and use the sort of like cleansing sense of water to just let it all go down the drain. And then centering is once you feel like you've shaken stuff off and you're a little clearer, take a few moments to find your center, your sense of self, like where your, where your boundaries are, like where you begin and end and where the rest of the world is and like live in that center space. You know, some people it's literally in the center of their body. Some people it's in the center of their head. Some people it's not localized to their body, but a focused, safe, sheltered sense of I am only me and I am safe and here are where my boundaries are. And shielding comes naturally after that when you've reaffirmed those boundaries. You get a good sense of where just you are without anything pulling you away from yourself and you expand that. And most people will imagine that as like a sphere of white light around you. Uh, it can be anything. It can be a fortress. It can be fire. But what you're doing is just reaffirming your boundaries around yourself, top, bottom, front, back, left, right, and that you've got a kind of second skin that keeps things out that you don't want. Michelle, thank you so much for spending this hour with us. Um, where do people find you? How do they get to stay at your bed and breakfast? Uh, well, you can find Inspiration House on Airbnb. 
uh, and just sort of pop it up. Everything's up on my website, which is my first and last name, michellebelanger.com. And also much easier to spell is I have a Patreon and it's patreon.com slash haunted. And that's where I teach all my classes uh, and you get access to a a whole bunch of stuff, uh, like weekly patron chats and things. And a pretty vibrant community of of awesome people that, that I love. Awesome. Thank you so much for being with me. Yeah, thank you. They're great conversations. <laughs>